Hello, my name is Steve Brown, and I'm the worship leader at Vintage Faith Church. At Vintage Faith, we believe the Word of God is what changes and transforms a person. We hope you enjoy the next 30 to 40 minute sermon of the Word of God being proclaimed and explained. Enjoy the message. Okay, so we, we have been looking at this new series we started out last week, The Son of Man. Let's see, let's see what you guys know. The Son of Man. Where does it originate from? Where does this title, Son of Man, come from? What book in the Old Testament? Daniel. Okay. And in the book of Daniel, it's very clear that the Son of Man is coming from heaven to earth. So he has divine origin. And we looked at a number of verses that talk about Jesus as being the Son of Man. Actually, he says it over 85 times that he is the Son of Man. And he makes it very clear. Well, it's kind of mysterious, but he's not hiding it. He's open to anybody that wants it, that he is God who came to earth and became a man. So here is some Latin. Imago Dei. Imago Dei. Anybody know what that means? Image. This is image, and that's Dei, God. Image of God. Way back in the Garden of Eden, God created man and woman, and he made them in his image. He created us in his image. And the image of God can be confused. People say, what does that mean? It's the idea that we, we reflect his character in the sense that we have intellect, emotion, will, that we make decisions, we have rational beings, we have a moral capacity. We are creative. We also speak. And after chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, that image was not lost when they sinned in the garden. It was actually marred. It became blurred in a sense. Now, I like to take a lot of family pictures on my phone. Some of you probably do the same thing. You know, back in the day, you know, we had Polaroid cameras. Remember that? That was what that was like the closest to an instant. You know, you took the picture and it would come right out. Now you have a phone, usually it's a good phone, and you take a picture, and there are times that I take a picture of family or grandkids, and it's blurry. It's blurry. And you go, oh, I gotta take another one. Everybody get back in place, we're gonna take another picture. Or I'm gonna throw that one out because you can't even tell who it is. You kind of pick out these pick, you know, people in the picture, but you can't really under... And that's what happened with regard to us having the image of God, but through sin, it's marred. We still have the image of God, but it's blurry face. I'm not talking about 21 Pilots song. We're talking about blurry face. It's not really representing what God intended. And so Jesus came to earth. He came to earth... Really, as God, he says, a son, referring to Jesus, is the image, the exact image of the invisible God, the firstborn. That means he is above and over all creation. He's preeminent. That's his deity. Jesus, who is God, identifies with humanity by calling himself the son of man. Son of God equal to God. Son of man equal to man or humanity. He identifies with us. As man, Jesus is the true Imago Dei. In other words, he, if you want to find out what the image of God it was supposed to be in the book of Genesis, look at the Gospels. Look at Jesus 
because he represents that. As the Bible says, he's the second Adam. The first Adam messed up. The second Adam did what the father wanted. Totally. So we're going to really zero in on the humanity of the Son of Man. What was he like? What was the humanity? And that he came to not only bring us back to God in a relationship with God, but also restore the image of God in us. We're going to look at these ideas right here. The purpose, the purpose of him becoming a man, the picture, what does that look like? The pain. Many times we focus in on the death of Christ, and that's not bad, but we miss there's all sorts of pain that Jesus experienced throughout his earthly life that we many times gloss over. And then how is this a provision for us to live out the image of God, live out the way God wants us to live following Christ's example? So let's go here first. The purpose of becoming a man, communicate. Have you ever run into somebody who speaks a different language than you? They may be from another country. Donna's laughing. Have you ever? When I went to school in Philadelphia, I worked in a, a Spanish-speaking church. I don't even know why. I thought it was really cool. And I did not speak Spanish. And they were singing songs in Spanish. I learned a few words but I did not speak their language. It was almost impossible to really talk to people, but some were bilingual. They could actually speak English, so that helped. But when you think about it, God, Jesus, is called the Word. And of course, the purpose of a Word is to explain something. The Word became flesh, made His dwelling, or pitched His tent among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the, glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in verse 18 of that same chapter, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, referring to Jesus, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. He communicated to us. He explained who the Father is and what the Father is like. They're the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're equal and yet different persons. Now this may happen in your house. It's almost like a ritual. When spring comes, certain critters find their way into our house. And I, I undoubtedly hear my wife, or I'll say this, ah, oh, they're back. The ants. The ants, they just come back. And of course, we don't welcome them we're not super excited, so we go get ant traps. Now, if I wanted to spare them the impending doom, see those little ant traps, guys? I couldn't just yell at them, hey, there's an ant trap. There's, it smells good, it tastes good, but you're bringing it back to your house and it's going to kill all you guys. I would have to be an ant. And I wouldn't be able to communicate to them unless... I could get down on their level. And that's what Jesus does. He didn't stop being God, but he became a man, took on human flesh to communicate to us what God is like and how we should live as the image bearers of God. He's our example. In 1 Peter, it says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. As a human, not only is he God, but as a human, he showed us this is the way you live. This is the way you live. Colossians 3, 9 and 10, 
Paul is exhorting the believers there. He says, do not lie to each other, seeing that you have put off the old self and its practices and have put on the new self. He's referring to the new disposition. When you came to faith in Christ, you were born again into his family. You have this new disposition to please God. He's saying, live out that new disposition. Now listen to this right here. Which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. God is working in us to bring us back to that Imago day. He wants us to live out the image of God that he created in us when you came to faith in Christ. Jesus became a man to show us how true humanity obeys God. Show us how true humanity obeys God. In fact, I think, and I heard, I was talking with somebody else about this, and they said, you know, the more Christ-like we are, the more human we are. Now, you got to think about that. Because when somebody does something awful in this world, we go, that is so inhumane. I can't believe they did that. And when someone's really following Christ, you, you, you resonate with that. You go, wow. Because it's going back to what God originally intended for humanity, to be in the image of God. To destroy the enemy. And we know the enemy is Satan, the devil. It says here in Hebrews... Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death that is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And so Jesus came, a lot of different reasons and purposes, obviously to save us, to give us deliverance, but also to destroy the work of the devil. Remember where all that starts? In, in, I'm talking about on earth, the, the enemy tempts Adam and Eve and they listen. They listen to him. They stop listening to God and they listen to him. And death started at that point. They were cut off from God, separated from God, and later on died physically. He represents us before the Father. Hebrews 2.17 says, For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and that he might, ha- and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And so Christ is our representative. There are times before I came to Christ, I used to think, okay, I'm going to do all these things so that I can earn my way into heaven. How ridiculous is that? To actually think a sinful person could clean up their life by their own effort, by their own activity, and think that would be acceptable to God. It had to take a person who is perfect, a person who has never sinned, and that's where Christ comes in. To restore us, 1 Timothy 2, 5-6, to he says, For there is one God, and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, this has now been witnessed to at the proper time. So what's a mediator? What's the purpose of a mediator? If you're in a dispute at work, what is the purpose of a mediator? Yes, they're the go-between. They're the go-between. They're the one that's going to reconcile both sides. So God the Father, his wrath is being poured out. And Jesus, the God-man, comes and dies 
so that we can be reconciled. When we put our faith and trust in Christ, there's not many mediators. There's only one. Jesus said he is the way. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That separation started back in the garden. And now his desire is to bring us to God. He had to become a man and live perfectly in harmony with the Father. Otherwise, somebody would have to die for him. Picture of true humanity. There are times, and I can say this was true in my life, that we have this idea that Jesus, because he's God, he was, you know, some people would say, well, he wasn't totally man. We don't always say that. But if you look at the Gospels, Jesus truly represented humanity and had some of the same things, same experiences that you and I have. Look, let's look at these. He experienced normal life just like the rest of us. I'm going to fly through these, so you have to pay attention. Just think about this. Don't think about the big game tonight. I know some of you are really thinking about that. He was born of a woman. He grew up as a boy. It says Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, favor with God and man. Think about this. Here is God taking on human flesh who knows everything, but in his humanity, he's learning. He had to learn how to tie his sandals. Now, I don't believe he got, gave his parents a hard time with that. I do it myself. You know, if you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. They're at that three or four age stage where they go, I do it myself. He had to learn. He had to grow in wisdom. A normal body. Look at my hands and feet. It is myself. He's talking to the disciples. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. He had a family. Jesus was born from Mary. And he had brothers and sisters. It says, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. This is when he went back home. They couldn't figure it out. We've known you for 30 years. Now you're doing this stuff? Now just imagine sitting at the dinner table, you know, eating lamb or whatever they had, unleavened bread or regular bread, if it wasn't that time of year. And there's a squabble going on. And maybe Joseph and Mary would say, why can't you guys be more like Jesus? <laughs> oh, they would want to hear that. But he had brothers and sisters. He obeyed his parents. He went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. This is after the story where they go to worship in Jerusalem and they lose the Messiah. They lose Jesus the Messiah for three days. They can't find him. Can you imagine that? You've got to answer to God the Father. Uh, I entrusted you with the Messiah. Where is he? We don't know. They eventually find him in the temple. And it says he wasn't in disobedience ever. He continued in obedience to them. They should have known that's where he was going to be. He always obeyed his earthly parents. That's amazing. Worshipped God. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, which was Saturday, he went into the synagogue, which was their form of church. As was his custom, he stood up to read. He worshipped regularly. This creates some challenges in your mind, I'm sure. Here is God, takes on human flesh, and now he's worshipping the Father. He prayed. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. That was a regular thing that Jesus did. 
prayed. Worked as a carpenter. Isn't this the carpenter? Actually, the, the, the Greek word is construction worker. And we think of, you know, he's making wood. He probably did. I'm sure he did. But it was, means bigger. It's a bigger idea than that. Constructing houses. And in that day and age, what were the houses made of? Stones, rock, mud, timbers. So these wimpy pictures of Jesus that you see, disregard that. He was not a wimp. If you walked everywhere you went, if you were a construction worker that worked with your hands, there were no power tools. You saw, you saw everything with your hands. You hammered it. You split the board. I mean, think about it. Jesus was a man's man. He was not a wimp like you see in those pictures. Got hungry. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And remember, in contrast with God, God is not hungry. God doesn't obey anyone. And yet as a man, he does this. He is God, the God-man. Was thirsty. This is on the cross. Later knowing that everything had been fulfilled, had been finished, so that scriptures might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. Got tired. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. These passages amaze me because he is not only God, but he's also taking on human flesh for us. And he's experiencing all the things you and I experience in everyday life. He asked for information. This is with regard to Lazarus. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. I believe that was a legitimate question. Where is he? Where is he? was stressed. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. If you experience stress, which we all do, keep in mind, Jesus did as well. He didn't allow it to get to him where it became sin, but he experienced stress. Was amazed. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Again, that's in his hometown where he goes back and he's preaching in the synagogue. He's doing miracles. And it says he was amazed. God's not amazed. He is God. But as a human, he's amazed. He's shocked by their lack of faith. He couldn't do very many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Was happy. I told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Was angry. Where were the other times? This was in, in um, John 11 at the tomb of Lazarus. Actually, the Greek is he stomped his feet like a, a horse because he's angry at sin and death that you have come into this world that I created. Where else was Jesus angry? In the temple, two times at the beginning of his ministry, at the end of his ministry. He was angry. How angry was he? What did he do with the tables and the money changers? Flipped the tables over, drove them out, None of Jesus' anger was self-serving. It wasn't selfish anger. He was angry in the temple because his father's glory and the temple was being polluted by people making money off of it. And in this case, he's angry at sin and death and destruction that comes from it. But remember when Jesus was attacked, what did he do? Turn the other cheek. 
frustrated. He's talking to his disciples. You faithless and corrupt people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Comes down from the mountain of transfiguration. Jesus, Peter, James, and John are up there and sees the glory of the Father. Comes down and they can't heal this demon-possessed boy even though Jesus showed them how to do this. They couldn't do it and he's frustrated. It's not sinful frustration. The pain Jesus experienced as a human. A lot of times, and this is what I said at the beginning of this, is that I focus in on the, the pain of Jesus dying on the cross, all that, and just thinking, okay, but there's more. There's more things that Jesus suffered where the pain is more than just the physical pain. There were some other things. He had money troubles that included being poor and homeless. Now, just think about this. When he left home, he was a carpenter. It says in the Gospels that the people who followed him, the women were contributing so that they would have enough money to buy food. That it actually says that he had no place to lay his head. Now, I am not a big traveler because I like to know, you know, this is my bed. This is where my laptop is. I have my spots, right? When you travel... You end up in somebody else's, you know, you got this hotel room and you, or use an Airbnb. And you're like, wow, this is weird. But Jesus, every day, every day he was in a different place if he was moving from town to town. Unless he stayed there for a while. But he's going from place to place, no place to lay his head. That's amazing that he, he was poor. And if you're struggling with money problems, he understands. Don't think, well, God doesn't know what I'm going through. Yes, he does. He got ripped off. Who ripped him off? Who was the treasure of the 12 disciples? Judas. And it says he was, he was kind of keeping the money, some of the money for himself. He ripped him off. He struggled to pay his taxes Peter's like, hey, they want the, the tax. What do we do? What does Jesus do? He sends Peter to go what? Fish. And he says, when you catch a fish, you're going to find the coin in there that you need. He didn't reach into his pocket or wallet and say, oh, yeah, here you go. Here you go, Peter. We, we owe this tax. Here you go. He goes, it's going to be a miracle. You're going to find the money in the fish. Pay the tax. People attack Jesus by spreading vicious rumors Throughout his whole ministry, they made up stuff. They lied about him. He was physically abused, mocked, and spit on. Continually attacked by the religious leaders. Why do you think they attacked Jesus? Why didn't they go, yes, the Messiah is finally here. Why does the scriptures tell, what do the scriptures say? Why did they attack him? Out of what? Jealousy, Jealousy and envy. Because the people were starting to flock to Jesus and turn away from them. Of course, they were going to lose the money that they were making off the temple as well. He got, they got upset because he was stopping their corruption and kickbacks, which they received from the temple money changers. Jesus had some bad days mar marked by loneliness. That's why he's called the man of sorrows, deep sorrow, exhaustion, and weeping. Jesus' friends were a joke and no help in times of crisis. Even 
One even betrayed him, and the rest turned their backs on him. So just think about this. He's got these 12 disciples. He's got 12 disciples. And when Jesus is arrested in the garden, remember he says, take me, let them go. And what do the disciples do? They all run. They scatter. And of course, one of his disciples is a betrayer. You don't betray an enemy. Judas was a betrayer. If you have ever been betrayed by a friend, Jesus understands. He understands. His family thought he was a nut job. You go, what? No. You can read about it. Right there, Mark chapter 3, or yeah, Mark chapter 3, where Jesus is teaching in a house, and his mom and his brothers are outside, and they actually didn't even go in, they just sent somebody in. And somebody said, oh, your, your mom and your mother and brothers are outside, they want to talk to you, and it actually says, because they thought he was out of his mind, they wanted to take him home. And Jesus basically said, my mother and my brother are those who do my will, who keep my word. <laughs> Pretty strong, straight statement. He didn't have all his prayers answered. Do you ever feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling? Can you imagine? He is God in the flesh. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. How many times did he pray that that cup would be removed from him? Three times. Three times he gets a no, 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 no. Stick with the plan. You, you come to certain things and you're praying and your heart is broken and you're like, God, wait, I need this, Lord, help. And God's like, no, I've got something better. I've got something better. And you're like, what could be better? He bled and died. He used his final breath to forgive those who killed him from the cross. He said that. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He was tempted to sin by the devil himself. Now think about this for a minute. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I, I can only speak from my own experience. You get temp, you're tempted. And, and temptation is a solicitation to do evil. Temptation is not sin itself. But the Bible in Hebrews tells us that he resisted. And it was, he suffered in that resistance. Many times we just give in. Ah, oh well. Jesus resisted. It was a form of suffering. Now here I want you to think about this too. When you see certain things in this world, say an injustice. Say you see it on the news or you read about it or somebody tells you. You see an injustice, you go, oh, that is so wrong. What does it do inside of you? It causes pain, like, I can't believe that happened. When you see sin and evil kind of conquering others, you go, wow, that is awful. Can you imagine, this is G Jesus is God in the flesh, perfect God, perfect man. From the time he was born, throughout his whole ministry, he is experiencing rebellion. He's around people who are ignoring him. John actually tells us, John's gospel, that he came to his own, his own creation, and his creation rejected him. Can you imagine? It bothers me when I see, of course, this never happened with our kids, 
But when you go into the mall and you see a little kid or a store and they're like, I want this. And the parents go, no. And the kid falls on the floor and he's going flailing all over the place and just going crazy. And you're like, oh, those parents need to learn some how to discipline their kids. And I'm thinking back to our days, like, man, that happened to us. <laughs> some form of rebellion, right? Temper tantrum, we call it. Jesus experienced that. How that must have been painful. Even his own disciples who he chose didn't get it <laughs> and walked away. Peter denies him. And yet he felt that. As a human being, he felt that pain. The provisions to live like Jesus, the perfect man. God has provided for us the provisions that we need to live like Christ, who is the perfect man, who, who reflected the image, the Imago Dei. He reflected that so that we can look at that and go, wow. Temptation, as I said, is a solicitation to disobey God. Really, does, it comes right down to this. God desires for us to obey him. Our old nature or Satan or the world around us says, no, go this way. Jesus always obeyed. I'm going to take one illustration from his life. There's many illustrations, but one illustration from his life. And we're going to take some principles from this to see how we can live in a way that pleases God. From <clears throat> Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize <clears throat> excuse me, with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He's been tempted in every way. Now, he may not be tempted like you and I are tempted. You know, go into a store and spend too much, or surf the internet where you shouldn't. He may not be tempted in that way. Or to use his cell phone too much when everybody else is around and you're ignoring people. He didn't have a cell phone. But he's tempted in the same ways we're tempted. And yet he never sinned. So let's look at that initial temptation that is recorded for us in Luke. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan where he was baptized. And was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. That's from Deuteronomy. <clears throat> the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, now this is really interesting. Satan is quoting scripture. He knows the Bible. He's quoting scripture. He's twisting it, but he's quoting scripture. So beware. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all these tempting, all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. 
So what are the principles? What can we learn from this? What's the provision that God's given us? What are the principles we can take out of this passage and bring it home to us and say, okay, God, you want me to live for you. You want me to follow his example. What can I do? How can I do this? Be full of the Spirit. That is such an amazing thing. Here's God in the flesh, and yet it says he's full of the Spirit. He's controlled by the Spirit. God desires for the believer to be full of the Spirit, just as his son, the perfect man, was full of the Spirit. He was under the Spirit's control. He was under his influence. says here in Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery or living like an unsaved person. Instead, be filled or controlled or yielded to the Spirit. You go, well, I don't know how to do this. Just think about this for a minute. If you know Christ, if you have him in your life, he, he's not leaving. It's not like the glass gets empty, the Holy Spirit leaves, and then he comes back. That's not the idea. A better, a better understanding of that word means control. It's the idea that, okay, Lord, I want to do what you want. And when something comes up, which is going to, and you do something wrong, which it will, and you sin like I do, you go, oh, you confess and turn away from that and get re-under the influence of the Holy Spirit again. That's why he contrasts it with alcohol. Alcohol controls, makes people talk different, walk different, act different. The Spirit of God, when he's controlling us, we talk different, we walk different. In a sense of our lives, we're following God. And we're not perfect, believe me. That's why we need the power of the Spirit of God. We mess up. I'll tell you, any given day, I'm going, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I respond that way? Jesus was tempted, but he didn't give in to those things like we do. But he was still full of the Spirit. We need the power of God's Spirit to live the way God wants us to live. Jesus was full of the Spirit, as it says in Luke. He also was led by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was led into a place where he was going to be tested. Isn't that crazy? There are times when God <clears throat> puts us in a place. He says, I'm going to put you here, and, and I'm going to test you right here. He puts Jesus in the wilderness to be tested. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. <clears throat> Know and use scripture. Jesus was quoting many times from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Old Testament. Jesus memorized and knew the scriptures. Do you know your weaknesses? I would think you do. If you know your weakness, do you know a scripture or a passage that will convict you when you fall into that thing? Or, or can stop you, you go, oh, I shouldn't do that because the Bible says this, and I have it in my heart and mind, and I know it's wrong, and therefore I have this scripture in my heart and mind will keep me from doing what I know is wrong. Psalm 119, David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says this, I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Do you have it in your heart? Or you go, ah, I'm really not sure if there's anything that says about that. So I'll just keep doing it. No, look for scripture or talk to somebody and say, hey, I've got a problem with this. I need to learn a passage of scripture. I need to learn a verse that I can put in my heart and mind so that when that temptation comes, I can go, no, I'm not going to do that. Because the word of God will challenge us 
and convict us. Jesus used it as a weapon against the enemy and said, no. And, and you know what's really crazy where the enemy, Satan, takes scripture and twists it. Just like we see in our culture today. There are groups twisting the scripture, so we need to know and understand and properly interpret the word of God. Know the enemy's tactics. As I said, he uses our weakness. If you're not tempted in an area, I don't believe he's going to come at you with that because it's not a temptation to you. You're like, ah, that's no big deal. If you're tempted to say things you shouldn't say, which happens to me sometimes, I see something I go, and I just want to blurt it out. Learn a verse that says, the wise man, I'm just kind of paraphrasing, you know, thinks before he speaks. Because <laughs> if you speak and then think about it, you go, oh, wow, that was bad. I just hurt that person. Now you got to go clean up the mess. Learn scriptures. Know the enemy's tactic. In Ephesians 6, it says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. That word is the word strategies. It's actually a military term. He's at war. He's at war with you and with me. You see, once you come to faith in Christ, you're God's forever. Jesus actually said in John 10 that no one can snatch you out of my hand. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. You are his forever. You'll never perish. But Jesus also told us in John 10 that the devil, the enemy, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He tries to steal your joy. He tries to destroy our testimony. He comes after us. He's like a roaring lion. But just think about a roaring lion. If you've been to the zoo, I don't even know what, what's it called today. Rosemont? Rosemont Zoo, thank you. Where are the lions? They're behind the glass, right? Yeah, I hope so. Yes, <laughs> yes, unless they get out, then you got then you got problems. Then the illustration's down the tubes. But they're behind the glass, and we've we've taken our grandson there and he's like looking at it. It can't hurt you, it's behind the glass. It can roar all at once. The enemy roars. He throws these ideas at you. You're no good. God doesn't love you. He's just lying to you. Just go back to the word and go, nope. This is what God says. I'm going to believe him, not you. Know that temptation is common to humanity. Don't think, oh, I'm the only one going through this. It's common to every single human being. <laughs> Even Jesus, who never gave into it, he experienced it. He says here, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. The humanity of the Son of Man. The Imago Dei. He is the perfect example of that. There is no blurry picture when you come to him. In, in our idea, when we look at ourselves, we go, wow. When we look at Jesus, if you want to know what the image of God is supposed to be like, that it was talked about in Genesis 1 and 2, look in the Gospels. You want to follow the image of God, the perfect one, Christ, look in the Gospels. Jesus became a man to show us how true humanity obeys God. 
In Hebrews 10, 5 to 7, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, this is Jesus, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll, referring to the Old Testament. I have come to do your will, my God. You want to follow? You want to follow the right one? Follow Christ. He is the one. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that we grasp the humanity of Christ because it really does have great bearing upon us. That he didn't just tell us these are the commands. He lived those commands. He followed your, your will, Father, to the letter of the law. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that your love compelled you to come to earth, take on human flesh, suffer in so many different ways, die on the cross and rise again so that we could have eternal life through you. Lord, help us to understand that you are someone who totally emphasizes, totally sympathizes with us, totally can connect with us because you have gone through it. As the Son of Man, you identify with us. Lord Jesus, help us to live under your Holy Spirit's power to bring honor and glory to you. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Vintage Faith Podcast. At Vintage Faith, our vision is to help people who are far from God to become totally devoted followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast brought you closer to God. For more information, check us out at vintagefaithcicero.com.